Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you from New York. Today, we'll devote most of the program to the global power struggles we are witnessing. America versus China. America versus Russia. We'll give you a Republican roadmap for how to compete with China with David McCormick, a former top Treasury official, hedge fund CEO, and Republican politician. I'll also ask him about whether the GOP Four more years. needs to get beyond Donald Trump. But first, a look deep inside Russia. Just what is Vladimir Putin's endgame? I'll talk to the New York Times bureau chief, Anton Troyanovsky. Also, both Beijing and Moscow have spies and operatives in America. That is a given. But revelations this week about exactly what both China and Russia are doing stateside shocked even longtime spy watchers. We will tell you all about it. But first, here's my take. The United States and China have embarked on one of the most hair-raising experiments in international history. Both sides are now locked in a steady, escalating geopolitical competition. And yet both are deeply economically intertwined. Can these two trends, geopolitical tension and economic engagement, continue or will one of them give? Over the last few years, as Washington and Beijing have feuded, U.S.-China trade in goods has remained strong, reaching an all-time high of nearly $700 billion last year. Major American companies, from Qualcomm to Corning to Wynn Resorts, get large chunks of their revenue from China. The Biden administration has pursued a policy toward China that is more strategic than Donald Trump's tariffs. It has sought to deny China access to some of the highest-end technology, chiefly the world's most advanced computer chips. It has also made large-scale investments in science and technology and is even providing manufacturing subsidies to revive high-tech manufacturing within the United States. The effort here, using National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's metaphor, is to build a small yard of critical technologies that are guarded with high fences around it, as opposed to coming up with a long list of technologies that would be hard to seal off from China. But the challenge will be to see whether all these efforts and the hostile rhetoric that surrounds them will scare off American businesses from dealing with China altogether. Off late, the administration seems to have recognized this danger and has tried to send some conciliatory signals. Secretary of Commerce Gino Raimondo has often said that the United States does not want an economic decoupling from China. Last fall, she said we need to continue to do business with China and trade with China supports American jobs. 
This week, in a major speech on China, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called for a constructive relationship between the two countries. She stressed that the American tech curbs on China were not designed to stop China from growing, but have been imposed solely for national security reasons, to prevent the Chinese military from gaining parity or an edge over America. But the administration's carefully crafted surgical China policy lives in Washington, a town not known for nuance. The Republican primaries promised to become a festival of China bashing. Representative Mike Gallagher's China committee has already announced that it is going to investigate companies doing business in China, which means any CEO with exposures to that market could be subpoenaed and cross-examined. And don't forget, China has domestic politics as well. Xi's tough line against America is popular in a country that is quite nationalist. Decoupling is already happening, as the Peterson Institute shows. The strong trade numbers actually mask a fall-off in U.S. exports to China. Because of inflation, the dollar value of the goods has risen, even while volume is flat or falling. Companies like Apple are searching for ways to diversify out of China. General Motors' earnings in China have fallen by almost 70% since 2014. Some of this is a healthy diversification, reducing excessive dependencies on China. But the real question is, where are we headed? If these trends continue and accelerate, which seems quite likely, we could see the world split into two zones, economically and technologically. And many countries will not want to limit their options by choosing just one zone. Emmanuel Macron might have been too blunt about his worries about Europe becoming a vassal of America, but his views are in fact widely shared in Europe and beyond. The war in Ukraine has hurt Europe by raising its energy costs while benefiting America, which is the world's largest producer of hydrocarbons, many at low cost. European companies are shifting investment to the U.S., lured in part by the Inflation Reduction Act's generous subsidies. A German CEO said to me recently, you cannot expect us to forego cheap Russian energy as well as the Chinese market. That would be suicide for Europe. More broadly, if geopolitical tensions win out and economic ties continue to weaken, we'll move into a very different world marked by much greater chaos and disorder at every level. One sign of this can be seen in the impasse over debt restructuring. Dozens of the world's most vulnerable economies are in or near default. Lebanon, for example, has been in default for three years. Yet the IMF cannot bail out these countries because China, which is one of the world's largest creditors, cannot come to an agreement with Western nations on the terms of relief. The two sides blame each other and hundreds of millions of people suffer. The last time two major world powers tried to manage a relationship of economic interdependence and rising geopolitical rivalry was Britain and Germany in the period from the 1880s to 1914. That experiment ended very badly, with a war that destroyed much of the industrialized world. Both sides should try to ensure we do better this time. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. On Tuesday,
Tuesday, American journalist Evan Gershkovich appeared in a glass cage in a Moscow courtroom. This was his first public appearance since being arrested by Russian authorities last month. His case marks the first time that a Western journalist has been charged with espionage in Russia since the Cold War. And while Gershkovich's arrest falls in line with the broader campaign by the Kremlin to quash dissent, many see it as a new warning sign to foreign journalists who until now had typically been spared from the government's harsh laws criminalizing what it views as fake news. To talk about the view from Russia, we're lucky to have the New York Times' Moscow bureau chief, Anton Trojanovsky, with us in person today. Anton, welcome. Thank you for having Pleasure me. Pleasure to see you. You're, Thank you. you're just here briefly visiting. First, tell me about Evan. Is, what strikes you about this whole case that, is, that, that we, we should pay attention to? It's a case that really should concern journalists everywhere and I think should concern, frankly, everyone because getting information, unbiased, um, objective, reported information from on the ground, from places like Russia uh, that are so pivotal to wor world events right now is so important. And Evan um, was doing that. He was on the ground for the Wall Street Journal at a time when there were very few Western journalists working in Russia, and he was getting us reports of what was actually happening, what was the mood in Moscow, in border cities, in military families. Uh, he was talking to people who were both pro-war and anti-war. He was giving us this nuanced view, which is so important. And when he got arrested, as you say, it's in a really an unprecedented situation for modern Russia, and it uh, creates this enormous chilling effect. Um, for, for journalists trying to work there. And this is why I think it's so important to really push for his release. Do you think this is a sign that, you know, basically we are back to something like the old Soviet Union? Frankly, in the Soviet Union, you know, this happened, as you mentioned, there was a journalist, an American journalist, who was arrested and charged with espionage in the 1980s in the Soviet Union. But he was released three weeks later in a, in a uh, prisoner exchange. This is the Nicholas Daniel. Exactly, case. exactly. Uh, this is something very different. Um, there is no, we are not seeing publicly at least any signals uh, from the Kremlin that they're ready to release him. Uh, Putin's spokesman said right after Evan was arrested that he had, uh, was allegedly caught red-handed as, as uh, Dmitry Peskov, the spokesman said. So. The Russians are sending the message uh, that they are going to treat him as uh, a spy, um, uh, which is obviously an outrageous accusation uh, against a journalist doing his job. I think, as you say, it, it's meant to send a chilling message to all of you working there. It's meant to send a message to any NGO that might still be involved. And it does, in that sense, seem to be part of a larger Kremlin strategy uh, I think this was a wonderful piece in the Times uh, about how the, the people around the Kremlin want all these hundreds of thousands of Russians to leave Russia. They want the Western-educated or Western-oriented liberals to leave. They want to create a much more insular, you know, kind of non-Western Russia. Exactly. Um, this is, it, it really does feel of a piece with that overall trend. Um, even though this is such a new step, yeah, it's, it's part of sowing fear. Um, sowing, you know, fear has been sown 
in, in Russian, among Russian academics, uh, you know, who are being punished if they uh, do something, say something that um, the, the authorities don't like. Russian journalists obviously have been dealing with this extraordinary chilling effect for years, even more so since the war began, and now it's Western journalists who are dealing with it. So give us a picture of what, as far as you can tell, is happening in Russia. It does feel as though, um, you know, we hear some, some stories, but what I'm told by particularly other foreigners who go to Russia is things are pretty normal. The, the, the sanctions do not seem to have affected the daily life of Russians. Um, is that true? And if that's true, can Putin, you know, stand this for a long time? Yeah, I think the, the most important thing about that is sh sanctions are affecting daily life in some way, but the government has been able to really smooth that effect. There are very few drastic changes. You know, yeah, Starbucks and McDonald's are gone, but there's these new Russian brands that have gone and come in their place, and, you know, it's not, to most people, it's just not that different. And economically, you know, people still have jobs, people are still uh, drawing salaries, most people never traveled abroad to begin with in Russia, so the fact that now it's become much harder to travel abroad as a Russian doesn't really matter um, to most people. And, you know, th the big shock was the draft last fall when 300,000 civilian men were, were drafted to go into the war. Um, that was the one moment where you really felt that stability shake a little bit. But then things went back to normal, more or less. You know, that draft ended. And now what is really interesting to see is that even though a lot of analysts are saying the Russians need more troops, they need more personnel, they are not doing a new draft, at least not yet. And that gets to the, you know, the only place where it seems to me Putin could feel pressure is not really the sanctions, because that's, as you say, I mean, they get oil revenues, they've got other brand, other Russian brands, but on the battlefield, from what you can tell, what is happening on the Russian battlefield and is it putting some pressure on, on the regime? Uh, I don't think we can say it's putting significant pressure on the regime. Obviously, there are stresses, but from all we can tell, Putin is as in control as he has been um, throughout this. Uh, you know, the, the next phase, of course, we expect will be the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And... Um, analysts tell us if you look at the Russian defenses, if you look at the Russian lines there in southern and eastern Ukraine, um, they are a lot more prepared for this than they were when Ukraine did its counteroffensive in, in the northeast of the country last fall and the Russian lines collapsed. You know, it's a lot harder to imagine that happening now. Uh, but of course it could happen. War is, you know, you can never really predict um, what will happen. So uh, as that counteroffensive begins, probably in the next couple of months at some point, you can, you can expect the unexpected, I think, again. Anton, pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much, Farid. Next on GPS, from Russia to China. My next guest has a new book out about how Washington can compete with Beijing when we come back. My next guest is David McCormick, who served in several high-level roles in the George W. Bush administration, including Undersecretary for International Affairs in the Treasury Department. He then helped run Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund, as CEO. Last year, McCormick ran for Senate in Pennsylvania, but lost narrowly in the Republican primary 
after Donald Trump endorsed his opponent, Mamadars. Now McCormick has a new book out on strengthening America and competing with China. It is called Superpower in Peril, a Battle Plan to Renew America. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Fareed. So I think you can help answer this question that I've wondered about, which is the United States does a huge amount of trade with China. It's about $700 billion now. Um, and I know that a lot of CEOs who run companies are wondering, they, they export a lot to China. China buys huge amounts of American agricultural goods. Walmart uses China to stock much of its uh, stores. They're wondering when they hear all the rhetoric, uh, the anti-China rhetoric, the tensions, what are we supposed to do? Are we not supposed to be trading with China? Are we not supposed to be in this economic relationship with them? Well, China and the United States, as you know, are the two largest economies in the world. But I do think we have a reckoning that's taking place in the United States. And there's a bipartisan consensus that we become highly dependent on China and that we need to take steps to treat China as the adversary that it is. And so from an economic perspective, I think what that means is we need to strategically decouple. Those industries that are so critical to America's security and economic vitality, semiconductors, pharmaceuticals, we become unbelievably dependent on global supply chains and particularly as it relates to China. Second, we need to put investment restrictions in place that stop venture capital firms in the Silicon Valley from investing in artificial intelligence companies that work with the Chinese military or the Chinese Communist Party. That's madness given that we believe, or I believe at least, that China is an adversary. The third thing we need to do is be much more proactive about creating the right kinds of alliances to check uh, China's aggression uh, its uh, aggression in geopolitical terms around the globe, and we can talk more about that. But that's the kind of, that doesn't mean 100% decoupling. When I was on the campaign trail in Pennsylvania, I'd go into one uh, place, a manufacturing plant, and they say, listen, you know, China, uh, the globalization's killing us, China's killing us, we've got to stop the trade. And I'd go to another, and it was a Harley Davidson supplier, and they'd say, wait a second, uh, China's a big market for Harley Davidson's. So I, I think there's uh, trade and investment that we can continue to have with China. It just can't be strategic in a way that undermines U.S. interest. So what you describe, David, strikes me as a very sensible strategic decoupling, investing in, in, in the United States, trying to make sure that you have restrictions on, on, on certain kinds of investments. It sounds like the Biden administration's China policy. So what, what, is, what is Joe Biden doing that... Uh, all, what, what he seems to already be doing what you are advocating. I don't think so. Um, so on, on two fronts, the, the premise of my book, Superpower and Peril, is that uh, we're in decline, but decline is a, is a choice, and so is renewal. So we need to have an agenda to really deal with decline at home by educating our people, by confronting China, and really securing the country. And there's two pieces to the China strategy. One is go to the gym at home. And the way we do that is through reforming our education system, through technology policy that makes sure we remain leader, uh, continue to have leadership, and through in ensuring that we protect our data. But then in terms of China, we need to reduce dramatically this dependence. And I don't think there's been a comprehensive whole of nation strategy for dealing with the adversary that China is. But when I look at Biden, largest investments in science and technology in a generation, uh, curbs on high technology for China, new reviews on investment. It all seems to be very similar. You're, I mean, you're... It, it, it uh, is similar in wording, but I don't think similar in substance, at least to the arguments uh, that, I, that I make in the book. 
the Republican primary is beginning, and you're going to have a lot of debate about China. Mike Pompeo, who many thought was going to run for the presidency, says he's not. Uh, nonetheless, is clearly trying to shape the debate where he says the United States should recognize Taiwan. That is almost certainly going to trigger Chinese, a very strong Chinese reaction. What do you think on Taiwan? Well, listen, this has been a, uh, an area of policy that's had great sensitivity and strategic significance for, 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 for more than 40 years. And I think uh, a policy of making sure that America continues to arm the Taiwanese with all the capability they need to make uh, any sort of uh, adventurism on the part of the Chinese very, very challenging and costly, to have U.S. forces arrayed in such a way that we're demonstrating that we have an ability to support and commit ourselves to Taiwan. And at the same time, remaining the, uh, and continuing to have the policy that we've had since it was put in place by Henry Kissinger of strategic ambiguity, that's a policy that in my mind makes the most, uh, most sense. So I think we need to have a strong stance, but I think the policy we have is one we should continue. When we come back, I'll ask David McCormick about the future of the GOP and whether Republicans can and should move beyond Trump. And we are back with David McCormick. So you tell a story in the book about how um, you're running for the Republican uh, primary in Pennsylvania. Um, you want to make sure that Donald Trump just stays out of the race because you're up against Mehmet Oz. Um, you go to see him in Mar-a-Lago. What happens? Well, I, I uh, went in to meet with the president with the idea of, of hopefully him staying out of the primary. I had been told that he was going to endorse uh, my, my primary opponent, Mehmet Oz. And uh, the president pulled up a couple clips uh, from previous TV uh, uh, interviews I had done before deciding to run for the Senate, where I had, I had not been particularly critical, but I hadn't been, um, I hadn't been particularly favorable about some of the things that the, the president had said. Uh, and then he said to me that uh, he thought to win the election, um, I would need to say that the 2020 election was stolen. And um, I, I said that I, I wouldn't say that, I couldn't say that. And then he subsequently endo endorsed uh, Mehmet Oz a couple days later. And, uh, and listen, when you lose a primary, 1.4 million voters, uh, votes uh, cast uh, by 900 votes, there's lots of things that uh, could have affected it. Obviously, President Trump being opposed to me uh, certainly didn't help me. But there's uh, many, many things that I could have done as the, as the candidate that would have closed that 900 vote gap. So. Um, I certainly think that have uh, influenced the election, but I think there's lots of things I could have done to win it. Republican primary. Donald Trump is the leading candidate by all the polls. Do you think he should be the standard bearer for the Republican Party in 2024? Well, listen, here's the reality. I think President Trump tapped into uh, an enormous amount of anger in our electorate that I saw uh, on the campaign trail. Um, and, and that was the thing that struck me most is that for for many Americans, probably half of America, uh, the system hasn't been working for decades. And, and he tapped into that and channeled that in a, in a very effective way to win the 2016 election. And I try to highlight those ideas in the book that I think need to have the right focus and policy and the right leadership going forward. And, uh, and I'm not gonna opine on a primary other than to say I think for Republicans to win and to lead the country in the right direction, I think they need to have a vision uh, uh, looking forward, a positive vision for how to solve the problems that are affecting uh, everyday Americans. And that's what I'm trying to lay out in the book. I think uh, campaigns looking backwards, not forwards, are not going to be successful. And I think our party, as conservatives and Republicans, isn't going to be successful. All right. I, I want to ask you about one part of the book that struck me, 
which was you say one of our weaknesses in America is that we're teaching American history wrong. Kids don't have pride in, in their country anymore. Um, and it strikes me, if I can be honest, I think you are here uh, genuflecting in front of a certain kind of conservative uh, conventional wisdom about you know, attacking the critical race theory and all this. Um, I, it feels to me like uh, the United States is much stronger for being willing to critically examine its past compared to places like the Soviet Union or China today where there is only rah-rah nationalist history. Uh, it feels like you're advocating we take a page from Xi Jinping's book on how to te teach history to this people. Why shouldn't there be yeah. critical examination of American history? Well, first of all, that's not, not the argument I'm making in the book. The argument I'm making in the book is that we should have an accurate uh, teaching of American history. So uh, the, the role that America's played in the world, the role it's played in bringing millions of people out of poverty, the role it's played in World War II in liberating uh, Europe from Nazi, uh, uh, Nazism. So uh, the argument I'm well, making- Well, true, but it also enslaved millions, absolutely. millions of people. So and why not tell both? I, I'm arguing tell for telling both. No, I'm arguing for telling both. I think what's happened, and I think, I think all the numbers and would, would, would say this is true, that our university system and our secondary school system is, is not having open debate. It's not uh, actually allowing the entirety of American history or even conservative views being taught in our universities uh, is, is another example. So uh, what I'm arguing for is an accurate rendering of history. And I think by any measure, economic, freedom, liberty, America has been a force for good in the world, yet has had dark chapters. And it's been a constant search for a, a more perfect union. Um, we absolutely need to embrace and stare at those chapters uh, that were dark. And I, I say so in the book, but we have to put that in the context of America's role in the world. And I don't think, um, I don't think this is an area of, of, of sort of playing to the, the politics of, re of republicanism. What happened uh, during COVID is, is parents actually got a window into how uh, our teachers were presenting American history and also a whole uh, range of other topics to our children, and they found it wanting. And that's why you see parents you engaged. Kids. Do you think your kids have been badly educated? I think um, my kid, I have three, or f uh, three kids and a fourth headed to college, and I think that uh, colleges today, universities, are very one-sided in terms of the political views that are presented to them. So, so I don't think, uh, and it's a constant conversation in our house, that they're seeing the other side of the argument. And I think it's a, it's a real problem. And as it relates to American exceptionalism, President Obama gave a speech that said, Yes, uh, you know, the Greeks think they're exceptional, the Brits think they're exceptional, and we in America think we're exceptional. Well, if you believe that America was unique and that it was conceived in liberty and the pursuit of individual freedom where the government works for the people, we are unique in history and, and we need to preserve that uniqueness, that exceptionalism. Dave McCormick, pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Next on GPS, we dig into what the Russians and the Chinese are allegedly doing right here in America to influence those living here. Two court cases unveiled this week caught my eye. You'll want to hear about those spy cases when we come back. A secret police station operated by agents of the Chinese government, not far from New York City Hall. As unbelievable as that sounds, the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York alleged the existence of just such a thing on Monday while announcing the arrest of two men who he claimed were operating the station. Then the next day, the Justice Department announced 
charges against four Americans and three Russians for being part of a conspiracy to secretly influence local Florida elections and divide the American public. The confluence of these two announcements made me wonder, what is going on here? Joining me now is Carol Raleigh Flynn, who worked at the CIA for three decades, including a stint as director of the Office of Foreign Intelligence Relationships. She's currently the president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Pleasure to have you on. It's great to be here, Fareed. Thank you for having me. So first, tell us about the Chinese case, this police station. Explain what was going on. It sounds really weird, doesn't it? Yes. Well, they were operating what was, in essence, a, a regional, in the United States office of a regional provincial police station, uh, part of the Ministry of Public Security. So these, these are police operating a police station in lower Manhattan. And it sounds crazy, but the Chinese do this all around the world. And it's fine as long as they're doing things like renewing driver's licenses, which is, of course, what they claimed they were doing. However, in this case, they were also uh, very involved with um, dissident activities, it appears. And in two particular dissidents, they, um, the first one was someone they tried to persuade, and uh, this individual, unnamed in the indictment, the, the dissident, uh, tried to persuade him to return to the PRC. And, of course, to face charges. They considered him a fugitive from justice. In the other case, they were tasked to, um, to investigate the whereabouts of another dissident in the West Coast. And so uh, clearly beyond the scope of legitimate police activities. So it raises the thing that I think people have often alleged about the Chinese government, which is very worrying, it seems to me, which is that they, they target... Um, Americans of Chinese origin, Chinese citizens exactly right. who live in the United States, maybe green card holders, as, as you know, they try to get them to become spies for the Chinese government. Is that true? It's absolutely true. If you look historically at the Chinese espionage cases in this country, they, they hunt in the diaspora, the Chinese Americans and, and resident Chinese here in the United States. That is where I think almost all, maybe there are a couple exceptions, but almost all of the Chinese, of, of the spies operated by China to penetrate the U.S. government are almost entirely Chinese, ethnically Chinese citizens, part of the diaspora living in the United States. They've been doing this for years. However, this to me seems like a, a much more aggressive operation to actually be doing this out of a police station. Now, what's interesting to me is, is would it be fair to say that the Chinese uh, espionage, uh, particularly of this kind, of getting, you know, recruiting a guy working mm-hmm. in GE, mm-hmm. it's all economic espionage. It's, Primarily economic. Right? They're trying to get industrial plans. Yeah. The Russians, on the other hand, it seems quite different. They're interfering in local Florida elections. It's, when I read that, I, I, I just sort of said, what the heck? What, what's happening here? But, and, and it, Local, local down to, it was the city council of St. Petersburg, Florida. Why would they care? Well, you know, I don't know. But as I look at it, based on what we've seen Russians do in our own country and elsewhere around the world, the language of, of what the, this, these four, four American citizens were, were spouting 
came right out of the Cold War. It sounded like Soviet language. They were talking about colonialism and imperialism of the, of the United States. The language was the genocide of Africa, of African people in the United States. And, you know, where'd that come from? It's straight out of the Soviet playbook. So, so to get back to your question, why this little, little city council election in Florida? Well, the Russians are masters of disinformation. They always have been. But now with the internet, they can make this stuff go viral. The other thing is, and I, I really can't figure it out because this is the FSB. The FSB is the domestic intelligence service of Russia. So, so they're in here playing in Florida, but maybe they thought they could fly below the radar by doing it in Florida. As I, I have to- European friends who tell me that sometimes, you know, the Russians have often been behind, for example, the anti-nuclear movement in uh-huh. Germany. Oh, for years. And the reason is that they want the Germans to get to, to phase out their nuclear capacity Absolutely. so that they have to buy Russian gas. This was the old strategy yeah. to make Germany yeah. depend. Yeah. So sometimes it's a, it's a little complicated, but there is a method to why they are interfering in a And sometimes way. it is, as in that case, for a strategic objective, uh, a specific strategic objective. Sometimes it's just to to sow disorder within a country because they don't want the United States to function well. Uh, Keeping us off balance, keeping us polarized is very strongly in the interest of Russia. When when you've watched this over the years, who's better? (laughs) The Russians or the Chinese? You know, it depends on what. Uh, the Chinese are really very pragmatic. And does it pose a threat to their country like the dissidents or what they perceive to be a threat? The Russians, the Russians are really good at disinformation. They are the masters. The Russians, I think, are at a higher strategic level. And you you said they're just trying to sow discord. Sow discord, but it's basically the same tricks. Uh, to discredit the United States. They still, we are the number one enemy to Russia. Pleasure to have you on. This is such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Next on GPS, Sudan is at war again. I'll tell you why this time is different and part of a worrying trend. That story in a moment. And now for the last look. Plumes of black smoke rising over the capital. (laughs) Hospitals besieged by shelling. Government buildings engulfed in flames. Four years ago, when the Sudanese people took to the streets in an inspiring mass mobilization for democracy, few would have predicted that the country would so swiftly come to this. Two rival armies ravaging the capital, Khartoum, in a brutal contest for control of the nation. On one side is General Abdel Fateh al-Burham, the head of the Sudanese army. The other, a man named Hemeti, who is the head of the paramilitary rapid support forces. In 2021, the two united to seize control of the government from a civilian military council. Last year, under pressure from allies, they agreed to work together toward a transition to civilian rule. 
but tensions between the two mounted fast and have now erupted into all-out war. Sudan's struggles might seem almost unique. The country has, after all, spent most of its post-colonial history locked in bloody civil war. But as The Economist notes, the persistence of violence in Sudan is part of a global trend. Conflict is lasting longer, becoming more intractable, and taking a heavier toll on the innocent. The magazine reports that in the mid-1980s, the average long-term conflict had been going on for roughly 13 years. By 2021, that number had stretched to 20 years. Last year, roughly 100 million people around the world were forced to flee their homes, mostly because of conflict. That is twice as many as a decade ago. So what's behind these shifts? In the first place, money. As the scholar Alex DeWall noted in an interview with Al Jazeera, the struggle between Burham and Hameti is to hold on to what he calls their kleptocratic military business empires. DeWall notes that Burhan has appointed loyalists into positions of control in finance, oil, and minerals. Hameti controls Darfur's vast deposits of gold, which is Sudan's single largest source of export revenue. He also has another source of power and income, his paramilitary troops, who have fought as mercenaries for the UAE and Saudi Arabia in their proxy war in Yemen. A transition to civilian rule and eventually elections could weaken his hold on either of these sources of power. This is a phenomenon we see across Africa. Resource-rich countries have witnessed sustained conflict as warlords, soldiers, and rebels have carved up the wealth of the nation. In the absence of an ideological motive for conflict, such as choosing a side in the Cold War or fighting for freedom against a colonial oppressor, Greed has become the primary motivator. But this is now all happening against a new geopolitical backdrop which allows such violence to fester. Ever since the fall of the Soviet Union, as The Economist notes, a period of relative calm prevailed around much of the world, largely because the United States was an uncontested global superpower. This era was not free from war by any means, but great power conflicts of the style of the Cold War appeared to be a thing of the past. American military might, or Washington's ability to write checks, was often an effective deterrent to invasion or rebellion. But all that has changed. America has withdrawn its military and its money from large swaths of the world, concentrating its efforts on a few key areas and issues. This has meant in some places that regional powers like Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE have expanded their reach, often by waging proxy wars. Indeed, foreign involvement in wars has risen dramatically, according to the data referenced in The Economist. In 1991, only 4% of civil wars involved significant foreign forces. In 2021, 48% of them did. And foreign involvement in wars is one of the factors that allows them to drag on, partly because foreign governments are inured to the conflict's immediate effects. Sudan is no stranger to foreign interference. As Ishan Tharoor notes in the Washington Post, Burhan and Hamadi's interim government was boosted by billions of dollars of aid from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Russia's mercenary Wagner Group reportedly has a close relationship with Hamadi, providing his rapid support forces with weapons and training. 
Neighboring Egypt-backed Burhan and Khaled Khair, a Khartoum-based analyst, wrote last month that Egypt's most consequential contribution is that it has catalyzed renewed tensions between the generals. All this bodes poorly for Sudan, whose people continue to be trapped in cycles of brutal violence. And Sudan may be just one of the places that suffers from the disorder produced by a post-American world. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.